Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by NeoModern. NeoModern treats your photos like art, offering simple, affordable concierge printing and framing. We'll tell you more about NeoModern later in the show. We're happy to welcome Michael Rubin, founder and chief photo officer of NeoModern. Michael, it's great to have you on the show. It's great to finally be on your show. Thank you. I love when our guests are so happy to join us. <laughs> it's such an honor. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. It's great to be here. I, I, I listen to you guys all the time, and so it's fun to be on the show. I think that every week. So, And then I forget, <laughs> oh, I am on the show, right? And you're happy, and it makes you happy. I'm happy, yeah. Michael, tell us a bit about yourself. You've had a long, interesting career, and you are now, as I said earlier, founder and chief photo officer of Neo Modern. Who are you, and what is Neo Modern? Well, Neo Modern is my latest sort of venture. I, I left my job about two years ago at Adobe, where I was a senior innovator, and uh, I just wanted to pursue fine art photography. Like That was my entire vision. But um, while I was doing it, I just kept running into this ongoing problem of I was so excited to sell something, and then I had to get it matted and framed and deliver it. And it, I cannot tell you what an ordeal that is. You know, for, for a photographer, you guys all know that. It's like driving across town. It cost a lot of money. It took two weeks. And I couldn't understand it. Um, meanwhile, I, uh, uh, my father passed away, and I sort of managed this large collection that my family has has created over the decades. And I realized that all of the pictures in the collection – or not all, but like the majority of photos in this collection – collection kind of quantized to a, a very finite number of sizes. They were 11 by 14 or 16 by 20 or 20 by whatever. And I couldn't understand why this was such an ordeal getting museum quality stuff done as a photographer. And I realized that I could really deliver this sort of service to professional photographers where we were just like your back end, where we could print for you. A lot of people print themselves, but we do the matting and framing and deliver it. And then I realized that consumers finally had phones that were good enough that they might want to avail themselves of sort of a professional pipeline. So that was the birth of Neomodern. I really didn't want to start another company. Um, I've had a long, really kind of cool business career. I, I was at Lucasfilm. I worked for George Lucas right out of college. And, uh, and we spun off Pixar to Steve Jobs. And then later I made films in Hollywood for a long time and wrote a bunch of books about digital filmmaking and somehow inexplicably I joined the startup Netflix and was part of that for a long time. That was that thing where they used to send DVDs in the mail, right? Yeah, it's quaint, isn't it? Interesting idea. Yeah, I don't know. It's caught on, I think. I think it's still kicking around a little bit. DVDs are not, there's no future in that, I think. No. Uh, but uh, but I learned a ton at Netflix. I really liked that. It was a great a great experience. So I was kind of done and ready just to be a photographer. But Neomodern sort of dawned on me as a an important thing to, to create. There's so much photography today is sort of ephemeral. People just, they take a million pictures. They're going to disappear. They have no idea. They're in 20 years. There's, they're going to have no images. Yeah, they won't have that family album that people our age still have from, you know, the early years. Yeah, it's great. A, a photographic print is a thing. It's a great thing. And it's not just an image. And the images are are everywhere today. And that's wonderful. There's a lot of sort of visual literacy. But I think we've missed the point of photography a little bit, which is to to choose from the millions of things we're taking, of all of the things we're seeing, and to make a physical, a beautiful physical print of some of them. And it will stand the test of time. They need to be archival. And that's what Neomodern is all about. We're about great 
photographic prints. So you mentioned this photo collection you have. How many photos are there? Uh, we had a previous discussion and you were telling us about some of the photos in your collection. And I, I certainly envy you to have all those wonderful works of art on your walls. It, it is enviable. I got to say, I, I can't disguise. It's it's every time I, it's just like being on the show. I'm just so excited every time I'm in front of this thing. Um uh, when I was a kid, my my I grew up in Gainesville, Florida, and my parents um, became friends with another professor uh, of photography at the University of Florida, Jerry Yulesman. And he was pioneering this sort of multiple exposure, multiple image prints. And so he built the darkroom in our house. He taught my mother photography. And my parents were started buying his, his pictures for $25 each and uh, amassed a ton of them. And he was – tight in the photographic world and started introducing them to other photographers. And the great thing about the 60s and 70s is like almost all the greatest photographers who ever lived were still alive. And mm-hmm. my dad having a little bit of a pack rat mentality and loving art and not being able to afford art with in quotes around it, like paintings and stuff, he bought photographs and decorated our house with photographs. So by my crib were the creepiest Jerry Yulesman photos you can possibly imagine. And I grew up around this collection and and it was a thing that my dad and I did together, you know, like kids do stamp collecting. And because I was sort of a tech guy, I built a database to help him organize it. And so we spent our whole life building this collection. So by the time he passed away, there were about 3,500 prints of mid-century modernism and that's from Ansel Adams to Ouija that it's just and it focused kind of mid-century but there's I mean if you can think of a photographer who's dead they are probably (laughs) in that collection and um, soon after he died I orchestrated uh, you know over over the years a a donation of about a thousand of those to different museums but there's still 2,500 prints left and they are there's a lot of cool stuff in there. And so one of the things that was great about Neo Modern was uh, to uh, even though I really see this as a web business, I wanted to have a great gallery where I could show pieces of this collection and not to sell them, not to put them in museums, but to you know, photography is a it's an incredibly populist democratic kind of art form and I wanted those pictures right where people could see them, where I could pull them off the wall and take them out of a frame and and we could look at them. So that's that's where there's a few hundred at Neo Modern and the rest are, you know, stored in various museums and places around the country. I think our listeners can tell that you're quite passionate about photography. Aren't, aren't we all? Aren't we all, guys? We, yes, we are. Yeah. <laughs> I also want to jump in and say, when you mentioned how many pieces were in the collection, as we're watching our little video Skype here, Kirk and I, like our jaws just fell down <laughs> because I was assuming you had, you know, maybe a few dozen nice pictures but wow yeah there's a lot the problem for the or in the organization of them was that for years it was sort of a spreadsheet i had them in excel and you know photographers like harry callahan every photograph is titled chicago or eleanor uh, and every ansel adams is you know driftwood and yosemite and it was really hard to know really what we had and when the iphone came out I began a massive project to document everything in the collection. So I had to open portfolio boxes, open drawers of flat files, take things off the walls, and I photo- I took unwrapped every single image in the collection and photographed them and put it into the database. And it made me super familiar with what's in there. There's, you know, 100, 100 Ansel Adams and uh, 80 Cartier-Bressons and I mean there's just a lot of pictures in there. Um 
so yeah, I get very excited about it. And even and I finished the art the, the organization of it the week before my father passed away. I was able to show him the completed set. And it makes it very interesting to uh to show people pictures in there because I can do I, he he and I also tagged everything in the collection based on why he got it. So he was interested in New York in the 40s or he's interested in abstracts or whatever. So I used all of the words that he used were his is- issues and I tagged everything. So I can quickly pull up a set of abstract nudes or you know New York in the 20s or whatever and it's a kind of a, a great way to slice this giant database of images. I find it interesting that you took pictures of the pictures with your iPhone to be able to make the database. I guess today you could probably just find them all on the web and download better copies of them. You know what? I did some of that. I did some downloading because there's I was just, you know, I was taking pictures of them and they weren't always great and you get sometimes we would get reflections and things like that. And I wasn't doing it to reproduce them. It was just so we could identify them. But um most of them are online. I'd say about two thirds are online, but there's a third of those pictures people have never seen or very hard to find. Uh, some, my dad had this sort of penchant for finding an image that was super famous that he really liked. And sometimes he would get the picture that was the next image that the photographer took. So like Robert Frank, there's a lot of Robert Franks in there. And one of them is this great photo called street line where there's a, it's a vertical image and the, and the, and the, and the line in the street kind of goes up and there's someone walking across the street. But my dad has this next picture where the person's like a little bit farther. You never see that photo online, but he has that one too, that kind of stuff. So it was really hard to find every image online. Uh, I did what I could. I would love to see the next picture of the Beatles walking across Abbey Road. They're probably teasing each other, hitting each other with something. Yeah, we don't have that. I don't have that one. (laughs) So we decided we were going to discuss two of the photos in your collection, and you selected two photos that you particularly wanted to talk about. There will be links in the show notes so the listeners can see these online. Both of these photos are, I would say, iconic photos. They are immediately familiar to me. I think anyone who's familiar with the history of photography has seen them before. And the first one is Arnold Newman's portrait of Igor Stravinsky from 1946. And I, I've always liked this picture because of the, the geometry, the shades of gray. So for listeners who aren't yet looking at the photo, Stravinsky is, is at the very left of the frame. He's leaning his elbow on the piano and his hand is on the side of his head. And the piano cover is open at a 45 degree angle. He's in the corner of a room. So there are two different shades of gray behind him. And there's this triangle made by the piano cover and the post that holds it up. There's these lines, the vertical lines of the corner of the room, and the sort of laconic look on Stravinsky's face, like he's just bored by the whole thing. He probably was bored by the whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so picture it from Stravinsky's point of view. You're Igor Stravinsky, and you've got a 28-year-old photographer sent from Harper's Bazaar to take pictures of you at your piano. And, um, And I've seen, I think what's interesting in part is the contact sheets. I love looking at the contact sheets because the he shot in, in uh, two and a quarter. And so the, the negatives are square and the compositions are, you know, ordinary. I, for lack of a better word, they're just ordinary. They're pictures any of us might take with, of a person sitting at a piano. And they're, they're nice. I mean, they're totally competent. But the magic of that photograph, and one of the reasons I like it so much is that he cropped it. And and I have to say, I don't crop my photographs. I don't. I feel like photography is about composing live 
in the real world. Like that is photography for me. And as I said in the previous episode on aspect ratios, photography is meant to be in a three two aspect ratio. Um, I don't know that I would hold to a specific aspect ratio. I would only say that the composition you make looking through the viewfinder of the image, whatever that aspect ratio is, that is the composition. The objects are moving. They're happening in the real world. You position in them. There is no room for cropping in my book or, or the game, if that's the right word, is that can I compose this dynamic thing on the fly? In, in So I don't believe in Photoshop. I don't believe in... Uh, at least it's moving pixels around. Says the man who used to work for Adobe. <laughs> and, and the guy and the guy who grew up with Jerry Yulesman making multiple exposure images. But that's different. You know, I, I've come to recognize a lot of photography as illustration. And I think that it is different. I mean, I love it. And it's great. You know, I, I, that people can do that is a miracle. And I yes, I worked at Adobe and I was on Photoshop version one. And, uh, you know, but the reality is to me, that isn't, photography in the sense of a, a, the game that interests me about it. It is a, that's an illustration project. The game is, can I capture something? And so you look at the picture by Arnold Newman and he's caught this sort of, he's taken this sort of boring picture, but he has gone in and cropped it in a way that breaks a million rules of photography. There's no rule of thirds there. He has shoved Stravinsky to the far corner of that frame. And I love it. I love everything about that picture. And honestly, it's the cropping of that one. And frankly, the Irwit, too. I've chosen these for a reason. Okay, we'll get to that one a little bit later. But yes, it is also a, a photo that's visibly cropped in a certain way. It's visibly cropped. But they both remind me not to be quite so dogmatic about the joy of, of photo photography. Sometimes things get cropped and it's it's a, a look what it can be created. You know? And for listeners who haven't seen the picture yet, it's also worth pointing out, you said that Stravinsky is shoved in a corner. Most of the image is the raised piano lid, and it's very dark. There's not very much uh, you know, tonal detail there. It's basically a silhouette. And so coming to this for the first time, you're like, wow, that kind of looks like a piano thing. Oh, and there's a guy down there, you know. So your eye has to travel this, this very wide, uh, not very tall image. So the cropping right there is already making you move through the image. But also the, the line of the support, what, what do you call the support for the piano cover? That, that's going up on a 45-degree angle, and that draws the eye down to where Stravinsky yeah. is. I see it slightly differently. I look at the parallel between Stravinsky's head being held up by his arm and the piano oh, being yes. held up by that stick, and those are, those are mirrored kind of uh, image, parts of that image, which I think are fascinating. The other thing is the piano lid sort of looks like a, a treble, a, a, like a note, a piano, a musical note, this black mm -hmm. note. And again, it, it's like he's done a number of really cool things in there, which are subtle, right? It's not, he's not hitting you over the head with the, these, these analogies, but it definitely creates motion in a in this static thing. Your eyes moving all over and you're right that the, the piano is in the center it, it uh, I look at it all the time. It, that's what I want from a photograph is that every time I look at it, I just smile. Let's take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about this photo and one other one after this. Neomodern is not just a frame store, but a unique high quality service for professionals and consumers set up to help make your images the best they can be. All their staff are photographers and Adobe experts. And Neomodern works with you to make gorgeous works from your images that you'll be proud to hang on your walls. You can drop into Neomodern's gallery in San Francisco, bringing your photos in any format. 
You can make an appointment with Neomodern's printmasters, or you can get the Neomodern concierge experience online at neomodern.com. Neomodern provides museum-quality printing and framing at affordable prices. Visit neomodern.com, drop into the gallery at 1898 Union Street in San Francisco, or call 415-901-3411. And if you come to the Union Street Gallery, you can always see an assortment of the Rubin Collection of classic photographs on display, along with selected works from customers. Arnold Newman is known for his environmental portraits, and many of them are of artists and politicians, where he would put people in the context where they worked. I'll put a link in the show notes to the Arnold Newman website. There are about 60 portraits you can see. And it's really fascinating to see how he situated these people in different locations. They're not the usual places you see portraits. You generally see portraits of people in some sort of a boring room or sitting on a chair or something like that. And here you see people like the German industrialist Krupp in a factory. You see Bill Clinton in the Oval Office. You see people in their natural habitat. Right. That's. I actually was inspired by that. I, I've done a series of pictures for the past a bunch of years that I call artists in their natural habitat. And I try to just go catch people not posing but doing what they do. And so, yeah, I, I love Arnold Newman. He's not my favorite photographer, even if this photo is my favorite photograph. It's probably on the short list of five. The Harry Callahan's trees in Chicago maybe being the second to that or first, you know, somewhere in that space. Oh, yeah, I'm glad you like him. Uh, I think uh, as far as ph photographers who inspired me personally and uh, my family, uh, Elliot Erwitt is the top of that list. Right. So the second photo that you wanted to talk about is a photo by Elliot Erwitt that he shot in 1950. I'll put a link in the show notes to a page on the Magnum Photos website where they're selling a poster and they title it Elliot Erwitt's America, New York City, USA, 1950. Did Erwitt give more precise titles than that to his photos? No. <laughs> it's like that's okay. a, in fact, a lot of this stuff doesn't have titles. Yeah. And, and that could be just a title to allow them to put it in their database to sell the poster. Yeah. Before you had photo image, you know, before someone was taking pictures of everything and labeling them, you had to describe the photo in the title to some degree. I don't know specifically if he titled it that. For us, very often in the, our database, it's just in brackets because it's kind of a description. I don't think of it as a title. If the, if, the, if the artist hasn't written it underneath the image, I consider it untitled to some degree unless I've seen it written on their website or, or in their books or something like that. I think Erwitt just titled stuff by the city and the year. Uh, very much like Cartier-Bresson. It, it might have been a magnum thing. Where it, so it's just New York 1950-something, you know? So this is a photo, like many of Elliot Erwitt's photos, this is a photo of a dog taken from ground level. And it's a tiny, I guess, a chihuahua in a sweater. And at the left, you see the dog. And at the right, you see a woman's feet and you see the hemline of her skirt. Now, he's done a lot of photos of dogs. He did a whole book of dog photos. Yeah, yeah. But a number of them are these dogs taken from ground level. And that's really a fascinating point of view for a picture. Yeah, it's and to me, I like that these images are touchstones for different ideas about photography for me. And the one, the Erwitt, is a reminder to both to crop because it was also two and a quarter and he cut out the whole top part of this image. But second, to really change your vantage point. Uh, everyone knows that. You see photographers all the time kneeling down and standing up. But it's just a reminder that like when you're taking pictures of children, you're taking pictures of stuff, get out of your standing camera at your eye level kind of picture. It just 
it, it gets it's not just it gets boring, but you're not really showing anyone something new. And so the Irwit is like you're, it's eye to eye with the dog, and it's a little dog. Uh, it's funny. I, I mean, Irwit's so funny. I swear, I could look at his stuff all day. <laughs> there is a lot of humor in his photos, particularly the dog photos. So my favorite is the one, and I'll put a link in the show notes where there's a you see a man's legs and there's a dog to the left of him in the frame jumping up in mm. the air. Yeah. And it makes me wonder how many times he had to get the dog to jump to get that photo with the dog in the perfect position like that. Because these are certainly staged photos. He didn't just walk up to someone and take one picture. That's true. Well, the one of the woman with the dog, uh, if, if you by looking at the contact sheet, I'd say that he saw someone standing there with the dog and he took a couple pictures and probably said, can I take a picture of you and your dog? And she said yes. And he kneeled down and took three or four and then got back up and left. Yeah. And he's a journalist. Like all mm. the Magnum photographers, they have this great – a thing I love about the Magnum photographers, whether it's – Cartier-Bresson or Erwitt or even these, you know, uh, Sabasto Salgado, they have this great artistic sense and then they go into the world and do what's effectively documentary photography. So it wouldn't surprise me if he just pulled his camera out and caught things because he's got his camera out all the time and he's shooting all the time. And I, I, and I would let me add one more thing. The reason I have these pictures up at Neo Modern is not just because I love them or even because they're instructive about about the cropping or, or changing your point of view. But I found that the street photographers of France in mid-century, so Douaneau, Cartier-Bresson, Erwitt, all these guys are, are the most like us with our smartphones. They were just out on the street with the cameras out all the time and the, the lenses. They did not have super zoom lenses. They had little Leicas with, with 50 millimeter lenses. And I find that type of photography the most instructive to people today walking around with their cameras. And so that's all I show there. I have Yulesmans and Irving Pens and other types of images, and I won't show them at Neo Modern because I, while they're cool – I don't think that that helps. Looking at a Jerry Ullsman photograph does not really help me with my photography that much. And the same Irving Penn, he's, he's got models and lights and backdrops and they're cool. But but Irwitt is out there, you know, on the street, walking around, having fun. And so was Cartier-Bresson. And that's what I want people to see. I want people to retouch base with those types of photog photographs. And I think it will make their pictures better. For listeners who, who do go and take a look at these online, here's something to look for. We talk about making good images, and that oftentimes means, you know, you want stuff in focus, or you want selective focus, or depth of field. And when you look at this, there's the little tiny itch inside me that's like, oh, there are so many technical things wrong. Her feet are out of focus. It's not level. Little things like that. Of course, that doesn't matter. These are such good examples of breaking the rules that it's not something that you need to get hung up on, which I admit I sometimes get hung up on. I have to disagree about it not being level because while it's not level, no, no, it's not level. But if you look at the vertical of the edge of the apartment building in the sky behind it, that's level. That's where he leveled it. Ah. Because it would be more disturbing to see that askew than it would be to see the ground askew. But I think Jeff's point is right on because the the truth is when you start looking at these great works of art of photography, you realize, my God, it's not about the technical stuff at all. Like everyone gets so hung up in megapixels and clarity and sharpness and and brightness, all these attributes, which I suppose are good to be in control of. But the reality is that the pictures that matter 
none of that really matters. Like, I, I mean, for some people it does, but it's about emotion. Have they caught something? Have they have they captured this thing? The, the photos that communicate have a story to tell, and it doesn't matter if it's not perfect. A few episodes ago, I, I pointed out a Joel Myrowitz photo of a girl who's on a scooter in New York City, and she stopped, and she's looking at the camera, and she's out of focus. But it doesn't matter. The look on her face and the position and, and, and the composition work perfectly. So it's important, but it's not that important. You know, you'll post a photo on Facebook or something like that, and there's always going to be someone blown highlights. It's like, dude. <laughs> Get out of my face. Ansel Adams probably had blown highlights, too. Actually, no. Ansel Adams has no blown highlights. But, but he stands alone. He stands alone in that. And we are not Ansel Adams, you know? Yeah. There's one interesting little touch in this photo that I find. If you look between the dog... And the woman's feet, there's a woman in a coat standing about equidistant between the two. And she's blurred. She's out of focus. But she's almost the third person in the photo. There are some other people who are blurred. But she stands out because of her black coat. And yet she's so much smaller than the dog that you've got this weird effect of the dog being large, the woman next to the dog being huge, and this other woman behind being tiny. And it, it just has an odd juxtaposition, I think. Well, that's what I count on Erwitt for. You know, it, like that's the magic of Elliot Erwitt's pictures are these funny juxtapositions, whether it's dogs and people or just shapes. You know, there's that one of the of the faucet next to a crane and it has kind of the same shape. And he just notices things. And I think, you know, they say that photography is about learning how to see. And Erwitt taught me a lot about seeing these sort of funny moments, you know, that are out there, the juxtapositions. And because everything's dynamic, you see it and it's sometimes it's only there for a second. And that's what he's he's caught. So you have to react really quickly. You have to be ready to shoot. You have to master your camera, yeah. but not in the sense that you have to tweak too many settings. You have to what, what was what is it that Ouija said? F eight and be there. Um, you have to have your camera set up so you can focus quickly, so your exposure is more or less right. Obviously, you can fix a lot in post production today that you couldn't do as well back then. I don't think of it as fixing in post production so much as finishing a picture. I, I I mean, if you didn't get it, well, if you're underexposed, then you're fixing. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. okay. If you're cropping and 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 tilting, then you're finishing. I All right. Think. I'm. I'm okay. <laughs> That's we can talk about. We can talk about that. We, we can yeah. disagree. Yeah. I mean, I make my pictures into black and white. I for a range of reasons, but um, I consider that post production. But I don't consider it fixing. So, uh, but that just. No, no, I wouldn't either. And and I wanted to mention that. So the two photos you've selected today, they're both black and white. I follow you on Instagram, and I'll have a link in the show notes to your Instagram account. And your photos there are all or almost all in black and white. I'm a big black and white guy myself. What is it that you love so much about black and white? Well, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons. I could go on for a whole show about why black and white I think is important. But the, the, the main I'll give you two minutes. Two minutes. Well, the, the main the main reason is that I think it's a gentle reminder that all photography is surreal, and we when we look at color photographs, we get this sense that it's a document of the real world of the of a real thing, and it's this hyper surreal slice of time. It's a fraction of time we could barely notice. It's a tiny little cutout piece of reality. It's a, a little square instead of this large continuum of space. So it's already this tiny abstract thing. When it's in color, it makes us, when we want to finish that picture, a lot of our post-production is to make it look as real as it can be. But it's not real. It's totally surreal. And when it's black and white, 
to me, it is a it, it's announcing this is already the photographer's interpretation of this thing. It's already a fallacy, a, a fiction, on on purpose. You know, so I uh, I like that. And then, of course, there's issues of composition and and photography is about controlling the gaze of the viewer through the image. And when there's little color splotches here and there, your red shoes and they're this. If it's not important to the image, it's a distraction to the image. And so by going into black and white, I can better control how you experience the subject, the the composition of this thing. So anyway, I, I love black and white. It's not for nostalgic reasons. It's just for aesthetic reasons. I remember hearing an interview with Jean-Luc Godard at the Cannes Film Festival some years ago, maybe 20 years ago, and he said something I've never forgotten. His film that he was presenting at the time was in black and white, and someone asked him why he filmed it in black and white. And if you're familiar with the way Godard speaks, he has this tiny little voice, and he said, life is in color, but reality is in black and white. Ooh. And it's and it's true when you think about it. I mean, I, I, I'm a black and white guy, and I lust after that Leica M monochrome. I think I'm going to set up a Patreon page to have people contribute so I can buy one just for that. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do pictures in color, but I feel like those are when the color is absolutely essential to the story that I'm telling, and it's not just pretty. It's not just making it pretty. And uh, that's, there's that also that Susan Sontag thing that like if it's a, a beautiful photograph is not necessarily a photograph of a beautiful thing. And I think that the color lets us have crappier pictures that are just sort of pretty, kind of saccharine. And it's harder. It's harder to make a good picture in black and white than it is in color. And that's the fun. Again, it's sort of like that hunting nature of photography for me. Now, again, this is just my personal ethos about it. But for me, it's just making it a little bit harder to have these constraints. And black and white is another constraint that's sort of fun to try to work against. Okay, Michael Rubin, this has been really interesting. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I hope we can have you back again in the future to talk about more of your photos. I'd like to discover a few hundred of the photos in your collection. <laughs> <laughs> come on down. Come come to San Francisco. Ch hang out. We'll go through the drawers. That's a long trip. You know, but it's worth it. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I, I think of it as a pilgrimage. Make a pilgrimage to the epicenter of San Francisco photography. Okay. <laughs> Thanks again, Michael. Thank you, guys. It's great Thank to be you, here. Thank you, Michael. So it's time for our snapshots. What have you got this week, Jeff? So we were talking a little bit about um, Arnold Newman and taking portraits, and it made me think of uh, a little portrait tool that I've started using um, when I'm taking sort of studio shots and I'm using lights. Um, it is a Photix, F-H-O-T-T-I-X, it might be Photix, Aries wireless flash trigger. The idea is you want to use a flash, but when you put the flash right on top of the camera, it's real direct, hard light, and so you want to move it somewhere else. You can do that with a cable. You can do it with infrared. For a long time, I had these really cheap, cheap wireless triggers because they were cheap, and they worked okay, but they, they puked pretty quickly. So I got this. It, it's like $45. You get a transmitter that connects to your camera and one receiver. It has multiple channels, and what's important to note here is so far, it works. It just works. You can get really, really expensive wireless triggers that go over vast distances, but I don't need any of that. I just wanted something that would be reliable and cost, you know, less than a hundred bucks. It's 45 bucks. They've been great. I recently bought a flash and a wireless trigger like that too, and I actually haven't used it. I bought it a couple of months ago. And this is the kind of thing where I need to take a rainy Sunday to spend a lot of time figuring out how to use it. 
but but I wanted to use this for macros, still life photos, things like that. The 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 fact that you can hold the flash in your hand and direct it anywhere, either onto a reflector, off the ceiling or a wall or whatever. I've been experimenting with light recently, particularly in macro shots using a reflector. And this is something we need to learn about is light. And, and I think learning to use a flash is a skill that a lot of people don't know. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, having something like this, you don't have to think about where it is. You just know that when you press the shutter button, it's going to trigger the flash and that's it. Whether it's on a tripod, whether you're holding it out at arm's length, you just don't have to worry about it. So that's my snapshot for this week. Kirk, what do you have? I have a new book. It is called In My Room by Saul Leiter. Saul Leiter was a commercial photographer, did a lot of fashion and concurrently, he did what we would call today art photography. His work wasn't very well known because around, I think in the early 1980s, he had financial difficulties, had to close his studio, and was forgotten until 2006 when Steidel, the German publisher of photo books, published a book of his color photos. In My Room is a small square book. In fact, the other Steidel books are about the same size, about 10-inch square, it's mostly nudes that he shot in a room on East 10th Street in Greenwich Village. These are photos he didn't show anyone at the time, and they were only rediscovered after his death. Now, I'm not a big fan of nude photos. I mean, I like looking at pictures of women, but the, the idea of the, the sort of exploitive nude photos of the woman in high heels in front of a, a waterfall you know, you often see these in photography magazines. They're not nude in the photography magazines. You know, they have lingerie on in front of a waterfall. It's just ridiculous. There's something incredibly sensitive about the way Leiter took these shots. None of them are exploitive. None of them are titillating in any way. There are women who are lounging, who are getting dressed or getting undressed, who are smoking cigarettes, sitting on the side of a bed. Not all of them are nude. Some of them are just portraits. It's an extremely sensitive book of photos of a domain that in photography often veers toward the sort of Helmut Newton, you know, full frontal nude type photo. These are all subtle black and white pictures. They all seem very improvised. It looks like he didn't edit any of them. He didn't crop them too much. None of them seem like they're staged in any way. He was there with a the camera with people he knew, his wife, friends, lovers, etc., and he took a few pictures. And apparently there are thousands of these that are in an archive someplace. So this is a new book. It's not very expensive. I'll have a link to my review on my photo website in the show notes. I'm not familiar with him. Is he contemporary or uh, what time period uh, are, are these from? Oh, these were shot in the 1950s or 1960s. So he was shooting until around 1980. He died in around 2000, I think. And as I said, he, he was more or less forgotten after 1980 because of financial problems. And it's a recent rediscovery. It's interesting that there are a number of photographers who've been rediscovered recently. Vivian Meyer, street photographer, is a good example. Maybe I'll mention that as a snapshot in a future episode. That sounds great. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. And don't forget to check out Neomodern, where you can get your photos framed professionally. Go to neomodern.com. That's neomodern.com. Until next week, thanks again for listening.